Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. This is a podcast where we talk about permaculture and regenerative solutions to everyday life, to the bigger problems of our day, and to history, to, you know, to see how things have played out in the past, how things will play out even in the future. We are looking at it all here through the permacultural lens, finding solutions to many problems, big and small. And so today we're going to be, it's very special, I'm going to be sharing another chapter of the Permaculture Student 2, the Frameworks and Processes chapter. But before I do that, I really want to like, you know, have a big caveat here because these will not be your typical frameworks and processes. These will, you won't find these in any other book. You won't find these in any other PDC or, you know, or online course um, put all together in this way. Um, and there's, there's, there's very good reasons for that. And then, but before I got even into that, I want to talk first about my morning routine because I just finished my morning routine and I'm energized. I've got an injury right now. Um, but I, I, I can play through, you know, because of my morning routine, I have this momentum, this inertia that carries me through my days, um, through my weeks, through my months and a lot of people have noticed. A lot of people are like, Matt, what are you doing? And I've had many conversations in the past year over the phone or in person with people who are making a lot more money than I am, who are influencing a lot more people than I am, and who are struggling with maintaining enthusiasm, energy. Um, or they see my example and they go, how is he doing that? I wish... I felt like that <laughs> and there's there's real reasons behind it um, and there's also real reasons behind my progression um, my progression in the past year my rate of improvement and rate of growth are unmatched right now in the permaculture space and so people are really noticing it and they're contacting me business advice personal advice life coaching that kind of thing and so I wanted to share with you some of these things that I'm talking to them about. And so I have a, you know, like a sacrosanct, you know, morning routine. And this morning routine guides my day. This morning routine guides my mind. It shapes my day. It shapes my mind and helps me rock my day. It helps me go through my day with power. And it also makes me resilient to the distractions, um, to the emergencies of the day and they always will come I mean that's the truth right if you're a parent if you're in charge of anything really you especially if it's other people that you're you know you're you're uh, responsible to and you're serving you're going to encounter unexpected problems and distractions in your day so that being said I start my day in that first hour to three hours <laughs> it depends on the day depends on where my head is at, depends on my physical condition, a bunch of different things. But let's just talk about the elements and then I'll talk about why some of them balloon. So first thing, that first few minutes of the day, your mind is still kind of asleep and we all kind of know that, right? I mean, your mind is impressionable when you're tired. That's why when you got woken up, by that emergency or that awful phone call, it like ruined that day. 
That's because that morning when you got woken up by those blueberry muffins or that, that special treat or, uh, you know, the, that stocking at the end of your bed, perhaps. It was such an incredible day because you started it with gratitude. You started it with connection to your best self, to what brings you that feeling of connectedness to the moment. And so I start my day with affirmations. I start my day expressing positive, affirming statements, and then I have gratitude statements, like I'm thankful for my family, my wife, my children. Um, I, and, and I can even go over some of those with you right now. Um, it's always right close to hand right here. Um, so yeah, I'll just go over a few of them um, because realistically, you'll get the idea. And you'll be like, you know what? I think I could write one of these better or more appropriate for my own verbiage, personal experience, goals, you know, whatever. The reality is, though, is that doing this changes in the frame through which we look through. I will not be slowed down by those afraid to try. This is my day. I will make it great. I will see the child of God in those I meet today. I will choose what is right even when it is hard. I will choose what is right, even when it is hard. I will honor the journey. I will show love, patience, and kindness. I will grow with nature knowing that I too am always changing and learning. I will meet those I encounter in my day with all the warmth and presence I can. I will make time for time. I will be debt free. I will be free of doubt. I will be a New York Times and Amazon bestselling author. I will give myself the freedom to be my best self, to make mistakes, and to do better the next time. I am healthier than I've ever been. I am resilient in the face of great adversity. I am uncompromising with my values and beliefs. I will honor those that I disagree with even as I disagree with them. I've put in my time. I've come so far. I'm ecstatic to be here right now. I trust myself. I trust I will know what to do. Something great will happen. Today will be the greatest day of my life. I don't know how or why yet, but I'm ready for it. Ready for it to be joyous. Today I will find a deeper connection with those I love. Today I will bring my best self to every moment. Today I will continue my good habits and leave behind any bad habits. Today will be the start of something new. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my body. Thank you for my mind. Thank you for my heart. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my wife, my children, my home, my success, my failures, my lessons learned. Thank you for my growth and my routine, my strength, my clarity, my trailblazing, my linchpinery. Thank you for the spirit that runs through all life and all things. Thank you for the examples I've had in my life of greatness, honesty, kindness, and love. I am so blessed. I am so grateful to be given this opportunity. I won't waste it. So yeah, that's, that's actually, you know, I didn't stop. <laughs> so that's what I read every morning and sometimes I read it twice a day. Uh, and so that like primes my mind and it's funny, I'll start off sluggish and I'll be like, uh, I will not be slowed down by those afraid to try. And I'm like, part of my brain is like, really? That's, that's the best you can do. Do you know what you just said? This is my day. I will make it great. I'm like tired. Right. And I'm like, really with that, with that energy, you're going to make it great. And so I'm like, uh, and so like. A few sentences into this, something jump starts and it mirror neurons or remembers my body, my mind remembers it connects to those passioned 
readings of this and I come back to myself and who I have decided I want to be. And in that moment, I become who I want to be. Because when you recognize, when you realize, when you come to yourself and you have that recognition that this is who you want to be, you can hold it, you can grasp it, you can know the feeling of that congruency. And then you, 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 can, you, you can be it. And so it's this really incredible thing that starts happening. You, you realize that you can shift yourself into a state, a mindset. And a lot of people call it, you know, um, uh, you know, let's get, you know, a game face on or um, let's uh, get our head in the game. Um, but it's this charged focus, this passionate engagement and joyous enthusiasm that, you know, suffuses every moment and your, your very mind, your body and the world around you with possibility and positivity. And you're inspired, you're empowered. And that is what I have decided my day should begin like. And so I try to read it with those kind of feelings and intentions. And yeah, like I said, I have those days where I'm sluggish, I'm tired. Um, maybe I watched uh, a video too late the night before and you have that, that video hangover. You know, you don't need to drink alcohol to have hangovers the next day. Uh, technology will do the same thing. That blue light after the sun has gone down will fatigue you and carry that fatigue or headache on into the next day. So, so I, I, I try to avoid screens um, in that first hour, um, but I have found that I really benefit from audio, um, from listening to um, inspirational um, talks, listening to um, motivational talks. Um, so not necessarily looking at a screen, um, but, but listening, um, and then also doing my daily planning. So I might watch those, like some inspirational things or listen to them while I, while I write so I'm not looking at the screen. Um, but I don't check my email, I don't check social media, I don't check in. But what I'm doing is I, I prime my mind, I'm waking up the right way, pulling myself out of that lower, you know, state, that, that slower, you know, you know we're, we're always kind of sluggish in the morning, right? For many of us. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and sometimes that happens to everyone, right? And so I, I pull myself out of that that way. And then I start going through my day or priming myself if I'm not emotionally connected enough. And there's an emotional level that I can read within myself that I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm there. Okay, I feel connected. Okay, it's like stretching a muscle out emotionally. And so I might, and this is why some things balloon and take longer than, than others. So I might not, I might feel disconnected. I might wake up, I might say those things, I still might feel tired. I might feel, um, and, and I watch a video and I feel emotionally connected. Uh, reconnected and or maybe I, I sort of do but don't feel fed or nourished enough I'm really sensitive to my my tank I need my tank to be full of gas to run through my day and until that's full I'm not gonna make it to all those stops 
and my day always has more stops than um, than, than I can ever predict. So I really need to fill it up. And so, and it's an emotional state changes are the powerful, that's the powerful force that changes your body, changes your feelings, your thoughts, everything. So I, I push myself, you know, to, to feel, to connect. Uh, and a lot of this time, this is me, you know, watching things that are incredibly moving. Um, and I don't watch movies with, with like R-rated movies. I don't really watch PG-13 movies. I, I don't even watch movies really anymore, actually, now that I think about it. But I watch documentaries and stuff and instructional things. And But um, I, don't al- I don't go there emotionally except when I read and listen and all this stuff. Um, and so I very select with what I look and take into my body and mind. And so in some ways, I'm pretty vulnerable emotionally now to... You know, you know, you put on a scene with, you know, family and kids and sacrifice and working hard. I'm going to emotionally connect to that because I've let myself remove all those barriers because I've not watched anything that can injure myself. <laughs> and so th- when I do take things in, I let it all the way in. I've got an open heart. And so what happens is it really hits me and it allows me to transform and to feel that the joy and the responsibility of, of of where I stand in my life, and so and so yeah, I, I just ramp that up. Feel where I'm at. Feel that response. Feel that joy and gratitude for who I am, and and the things that I'm participated in and blessed with. And then I'm doing my daily planning, and it's it's all over the place. Sometimes you know I'll be watching that video for thirty minutes, you know, or like listening to a gratitude thing. You know, repeat, repeat. Um, it really depends on the condition of my mind and emotions. And so I'm really steamrolling, you know, myself out here, you know, so that I can be ready to face my wife, my boys, the day, my students, social media, you know, all of it, all my all my chores, the animals, all of them. So so that's why I'm doing this. And then and I'm waking up early, five thirty six every morning to do all this. And then I'm doing my daily planning. And I'm following the Brenda Burchard uh, daily bl- uh, planner one one page daily planner um, format. Um, I I've taken his experts academy. I've taken his high performance um, uh, coaching high performance um, academy. I've taken like tons of his courses and I've taken other courses by other people. But his daily planning is my favorite, and I modified it a little bit. But mostly, you know, you write down what your major projects are and the steps you need to take to succeed in them, and then. You write down who you need to reach out to, who you're waiting on. And then you write down, distilled from all that, your to-do list for that day, your top priorities. And so that's what what I do. And then I prioritize it. So I'm highlighting, I'm putting numbers on things and stars. And then I have a whole... A whole like sim- like series of symbols and stuff where I'm checking, I'm I'm dashing, I'm doing a little spiral to say in process. I'm doing X's to say we're no longer doing that. I'm doing a swirly line to say that that's putting being put off till tomorrow. So I'm I'm doing all these things to organize myself, direct my attention, focus my attention on only what matters right now, and keeping that clarity of order. And that kind of clarity is exactly 
what was lacking in the processes and frameworks of the PDC traditional permaculture design format. And this is why I created the processes and frameworks chapter the way I did. Because it is not like anything else that you'll read and find. And there's specific reasons for that. Um, so anyway, we'll get to that in a second. But, um, but yeah, so I, I do that. I, then I work out. So I prime my mind. Um, I write down my daily to-do list and everything. And then, well, and then I work out my mind. So I do um, 45 minutes to an hour of meditation. And you're like, whoa, 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 Matt, 45 minutes to an hour? What are you doing? <laughs> and it's not like I'm sitting here saying one word over and over again. I'm doing a very, very specific directed um, meditation, the Dr. Joe Dispenza meditation. And this is a guy that's using EEGs, brain scans, physical tests. I mean, he is the most scientific um, lens through which meditation has been examined that I know of. You may know of someone else, but his take on it is healing people because he actually followed the science of it. And he proved things and he kept following that and he kept using the testing to show what was working and how it was working and then refine and refine. And he's curing, well, he's having people cure themselves essentially through meditation, um, through, um, yeah, through resetting their minds essentially. It's really absolutely incredible. So that's what I do. Um, I do that um, every morning. Sometimes I do it in the afternoon too. I try to do it in the afternoon too actually. And then I do yoga for 20 to 30 minutes. And when I say I do yoga, it's probably a little bit more intense than a lot of people are doing yoga. I can kiss my knees, um, keeping my legs straight, and then bending at the waist, um, standing up. Um, and a lot of that is due to guidance from one-on-one -on -one people like Antoinette Marquez. Um, she's also AMAC Beauty. She's also you know the person doing kelp farming. She's one of the experts that helped me with my books. She's a peer reviewer. And... Um, and then I'm doing pull-ups, as many pull-ups as I possibly can every single morning. Why? Because pull-ups, for some reason, coincide with, um, well, first of all, I didn't like doing pull-ups. It was the one thing I knew I should do forever and should be able to do, and I didn't do, and I didn't like. And so I first did them, and there I could do four. And um, I somehow innately knew that they would help my posture, and they totally do. And actually... If I do push-ups, keep trying to do push-ups, I throw my shoulder out. And so it's only the pull-ups that really like, like those muscles that pulls my shoulder into the correct position. I played too much bass. I mean, I was a professional musician. You guys know that, right? I played in the cringe for seven years with Saturday Night Live's uh, house drummer um, since the mid-90s, um, Sean Pelton, the amazing drum legend. And uh, Rachel Ray's husband, John Cusimano. Um, so, I, I mean, like, I just thrashed my shoulder out by playing bass, you know, eight hours a day for, you know, over 10 years. So, um, so I, I do pull-ups. And they're so hard. And, I mean, this morning I did 21. My record's 24. 
So I am transforming my body. I'm taller. Um, my back's straighter than it has ever been. Maybe it was as this straight when I was a toddler. I don't know, though. I don't think so. Um, but yeah, I've always slouched. Um, and I realized it was a choice socially that I was making. Um, and once I realized it was a, a social manifestation, not a physical manifestation, I suddenly started standing up straight, becoming conscious of it. Uh, I mean, we, 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 we slouch to hide. And uh, we're trained uh, by schools and schooling and hierarchical uh, situations and families especially ones where they hit people. Um, we're taught to slouch. We're taught to cower. And that's not good enough. It's not good enough. I refuse to be that example for my kids, for my students, for the people I meet in my day. And so I stand up straight now. <laughs> and I love it. And I'm proud that I can do that. And, I, and, and so, so, so yeah, no, I work out and value it and I cherish it and I, and I have gratitude for it. And I have gratitude for my meditation because it, I mean, you may think meditation's woo-woo, waste of time, all this stuff, but guess what? You spend 20 minutes sitting there trying to focus on nothing and you will face your weakness, your worries, your stresses, your childhood fears those voices that plagued you at your worst moments throughout your life, they will surface and you will have to address them and pack them away or let them go on and pass. And you know, most of us, when we hear those things, we're like pushing them away, packing them away, you know, because we're just getting through our day. But when we're holding still, when we're meditating, we have to face those things. You can't, it'll just keep plaguing your mind. You try to push it away, it'll come right back. <laughs> you try it back and it'll pop out. And so meditation is a maturation process um, unlike anything else. And I highly recommend that you try it, that you challenge yourself. And that's the reason why I do an hour because it is so unrealistic so um, uncompromising so audacious and that's the thing is when you go for audacious when you go for massive change you massively change and then the world reacts to you changing massively so that's my morning routine. And then I kick right into the day. And I'm doing vocal warm-ups before, before I speak. I did that today. I'm doing dishes. I'm cooking food for the family. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, some people are like, oh man, you don't do the dishes before you go to bed. You know what, some nights, no. A lot of nights, no. <laughs> because at night, I really, really don't want to be feeling like I have to do something other than clearing my mind and prepping my mind for the next day. Because you know what? In the morning, the dishes are easy. When I am primed, I'm like, boom, ba, boom, 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 ba, done. Let's go. What's next? So, so at the end of the day, when I'm kind of impressionable again, I take that time to reprogram myself again with gratitude, 
family blessing book. So I train my kids because I can't guarantee that they'll do it themselves on their own. And then I do my own gratitude journal. And this is, that's my pattern. And that's why I can maintain. That's why I get my energy. That's why I can correct. That's why I can play through my injuries, play through um, when, when things go wrong, um, when emergencies happen, when I'm on tour and my vehicle breaks down such that I can't tow it back to my state and such that I have to pay in cash off my debt in order to even sell it for parts. You know what I mean? We gotta be able to react. We gotta be able to allow these things to pass through us. Recognize them, acknowledge them, and then move on with focus, determination, and joy. I hope that serves you. I hope that gives you something that you can take away and you can start using to magnify your day, to draw it closer to your heart, towards your control. And I hope that it helps you reach that joy and engagement in life that really rewards us at the end of the day. Because that's, you know, that's the thing is it's like we prime ourselves so at the end of the day we can take that joy and write it down and say, this is my day. This is, <laughs> this is my day. And I want that for everyone. So now going back to the topic at hand, updating the permaculture frameworks and processes. So when we look at the PDC model, or the permaculture uh, a designer's uh, manual, uh, Mollisonian model of frameworks and processes, we have observation is key, right? It's the basis for everything. You wanna be doing nine times the observation to one times action, right? That's what Jeff Lawton says. And then you've got zonal mapping, right? Which is just a landscaping technique where you put things, the, the number of steps you count. And so you put things that t you do every day close to the house. You do things you do sometimes, you know, further out and you do things hardly ever even further out. It's just zonal mapping and planning. Um, so, so, so we have that, right? And then we have your personal goals, what you want to grow and out of the lists of possibilities. So it's, mapping, it's researching, creating lists of possibilities, and then it's ordering in terms of proximity, and that's it. What about, what about all the other factors? And yeah, no, no, I mean, climate's in there, that's map making, all that stuff, don't get me wrong. But, but, but what about, you know, what about economic? What about social? What about management over time? What about the succession of action? What about the order? What about what you do first? And it's like, yeah, no, I know we need to observe and then we need to map, but people do this. People have been doing this for decades and it ends up either being so chaotic, overwhelming, like they have too much. There's too much food. They can't harvest it all. Um, it's too chaotic. It's They can't keep track of it all. Um, it's not aligned to a business model, so they don't know how to scale, how to graft it into a business. 
And maybe it's a problem with their neighbors. Maybe socially um, in the greater area it doesn't work out. Maybe, you know, all these different different things. Um, and maybe because of the, they didn't have a clear understanding of the succession of action, they're constantly going back and redoing things. This is something I'm hearing uh, from teachers who have been teaching permaculture for 20 years, have established schools and sites in the tropics, and they're having bridges and things wash out because they just copied what was being done. They didn't look to the future. They didn't, I mean, they didn't create a succession of action. They just kept adding on. And so we have this increasingly, this, this, this process of lack being spread. And so people get frozen at a critical moment of the process. And so we need to fill in this, 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 this one, this, this lack in this process. So what do I mean by that? All right. Well, have you checked out holistic management? And if you're like, hey, man, those holistic management people aren't permaculture. And they say we're not permaculture and, and are not holistic management. And then da, 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 da. That's not the case at all. That may be what an Internet troll said, but that's not the case at all. The reality is holistic management people rock. <laughs> they've got great ideas they've got great insights that can help everyone and the reverse is also true that the frameworks and, 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 and systems within permaculture already can add to holistic management and holistic um, uh, design and planning and decision making uh, goal setting all those kinds of things context um, so holistic management is really really incredible let me pull up my book right here so we can just talk about this for a second because the reality is, um, yeah, so, and I mean, there's other things that are, are there in the, the process and frameworks, you know, trying to create longevity and design, trying to match the cycles, using the scientific method, making it functional options. And, but these are just principles. These aren't an actual, you know, order of action. Um, flow diagrams. Um, that doesn't tell you how to order the flow. Um, and then, but, but to go back what I was talking about, and then we have extending yields, you know, uh, maximizing yields. Um, so yeah, holistic management and design. Um, it's based off of the concept of being holistic and capturing all the different aspects and possibilities thereof. And so the thing is, when you look at that, you're going to define the whole. You're going to set ethical short-term and long-term goals. Uh, you're going to observe and document. Okay, the observation part was in permaculture, but document. How many is uh, you know PDCs have a requirement of documentation? Uh, that you know you're taking your site, you're doing the research, but are you documenting over time? That's why my 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 advanced permaculture course is documentation based. I mean, you're doing a project. You're documenting over time with specific benchmarks, and then it's rooted in all that research. So you have an amazing contextual understanding. So we don't do this thing where we make charts and we have, you know, disparate examples. It's just so ridiculous. We need to understand the context much better to really understand um, what people are doing in terms of like sequestering carbon and their nutritional densities of their food. And it's really just cherry picking when we just uh, take that farm and say oh 
you know, whole, you know, carbon farming does this or that. Look at the numbers. And it's like this specific farmer does that in this specific soil type and this specific climate and this, you know, you know what I'm saying? All right. So we just got to be more into documentation, I, th I feel. And that's why we do that in my courses. Then we need to test our decisions. Ooh, boy, experimentation. That's something that needs to be required in everything, right? And then the feedback loop, reflection. This is, you know, a fundamental part of all education. Um, and a lot of the holistic management, if you're an educator, you're going to be like, wow, this is stuff we've been doing for decades before holistic management really sussed this out and hammered it out. Teachers already knew a lot of this stuff. And we've been proving it in a classroom setting for a long time. So, so reflection, you know, I include with everything I do because I understand that is the actual moment of learning. Before you were just memorizing what the teacher was saying, you know, you're just going through the actions, you're just going through the motions. But then when you stop and reflect, you see it with different eyes, you encode it into a different part of your memory. And then we have some really interesting things like there's the principle, the, the fourth principle of holistic management, time and timing. And that's, you know, strategic, but it is much greater than that um, because it goes into management. So we need to think about not just about the outset of design. We're not just showing up and designing a site and then leaving it. Like most permaculture design courses are training the, the, the students to go for an afternoon and design a site and then go and design, install that site and walk away. And the reality is we need to think um, more thoroughly. We need to look into management. We need to be looking into the economic, the future. We need to be looking seven generations into the future. And so speaking of all that, all right, so we need to be thinking along permanent scales because uh, this is permaculture, right? So the key line scale of permanence by Pierre Yeoman is a linchpin in all of this. And it led to the Regrarian's um, platform, which we'll get to in a second. But let's first delve into this because the key line scale of permanence um, is so incredible because it orders things. So number one is your climate, which is similar to permaculture. Number two is your land shape, similar to permaculture. Number three is water supply. But then number four is farm roads. Number five is trees. Number six is permanent buildings. Number seven is subdivision fences. And number eight is soil. So the order of things is very, very specific and a little bit unexpected until we explain why it works this way. And then the Regrarians platform plays off this and then adds holistic management's insights. So suddenly we have climate, geography, then water, then access, then forestry, then buildings, then fencing, then soil, then economy, and then energy because we need to consider all those things. Um, and if you recall reading Permaculture Designer's manual, there's no renewable energy section. Um, there's no economic section. And the social section is very thin and has no principles. So we're looking at a very unexplored territory. And that's why it's so critical that we get this in here because we have so much information in permaculture that if we can't put it into a logical framework in order for action that works in all geographies, 
all climate, um, then then we're going to find problems. And if you've been in permaculture for a little bit, you probably have heard about disasters, mistakes, failures, embarrassments, and designers having to redesign other designers' installations. This has happened. Um, and that's pretty understandable when you actually get down to the brass tacks of how it works. Because when you look at the Regrarians platform, or even the scale of permanence, you realize that there is a logic that is unquestionable, that is undeniable, that once you get, you're going to rely upon. And I'll go over it right now, and then I'll go over it again in the reading of the chapter that follows, just so that you have it locked in. So number one, climate. Well, this is going to you know, determine you know, your weather, the sun path. This is going to determine, in a lot of ways, uh, the brittleness or the non-brittleness of your climate. And this is also, as Darren likes to point out, the climate of the mind. Because at the outset, if you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're disempowered, you're not going to be able to have the mindset to go through these things. The, the climate of the mind, the social climate. If you're trying to install something in an area that's hostile to that, you have you know severe difficulties and you got to address those um you either design within that or address that in your design and then land shape well all you know the geography i should say the geography this is regarding platform now he changed the language somewhat uh, to be more precise so the geography all the landscapes on the earth are going to determine what you can do on that landscape and if you don't believe me, go to the side of a mountain and say, let's put a garden. Hmm. <laughs> it's nothing but rock and it's vertical. You know what I mean? And it, your geography is going to determine things. You're somewhere flat, super flat, and you get tons of water. Well, that, that geography is going to lean towards certain possibilities. You know, like next section water where is the water your water access is going to determine everything so your geography determines the flow of water in the watershed and then so you're like oh this is the geography i have this is the flow of water this is the landscape this is the flat this is the steep this is the, sh the sheltered area this is the in relation to the sun path and the climate this is, these are the different areas because we always have to look at these things in conjunction. And now you're looking at water access. So you're like, oh, this is the sheltered microclimate areas. This is the, the geography. This is where the watershed comes in. This is where the water is, is, you know, collecting. This is the areas of deposition. This is the key point. This is the key line. This is where, and it's so suddenly all these things are, are showing themselves in the landscape. And you're like, now, how am I going to access that water that's available at the key point, at the key line, at these deposition areas throughout the landscape? And so you're going to design roads, your access to that water, because access to water is access to life and stability and your economy for that area. Whether you're doing um, just 
passive irrigation through the landscape through the way you've designed it or whether you're you know have systems that irrigate and maybe you're pumping water and all that it doesn't matter what you've designed water is your life is life and access to it is your access to that on that site and then you're going to realize okay well you know where are the areas that need shelter where are the areas that need windbreak where are the areas um, like the ridges where you can compress the airwaves, compress the moisture in there? You don't actually compress the airwaves. You just um, speed them up as, you, as they move upwards. Um, so, so you actually you, 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 you compress the, the, the moisture in the air and then it becomes denser moisture and then you increase the probability of rain. And, and you're also forcing it upward. So that, that action... Um, is, is all about creating rain, all about um, creating um, uh, a sheltered area right behind the trees as well. Though an Eichmann spiral will go up and come down again. And so that's why on Sepp Holter's site, you notice he has windbreaks against the wind side on his, on his ponds so that it creates a windbreak, but then causes the wind to slam down into that, that water to aerate it passively and then it's it's lengthwise to the wind path so we want to think about forests uh forestry trees ridges uh creating sheltered areas and then you're gonna go okay so now i've got the sheltered areas now i've got these roads and now i've got water mapped out where is going to be the ideal spot to place the house the buildings um, and so you suddenly see, well, I don't want to be down in the air lake, down in the valley where there's flooding perhaps, and I don't want to be up on the ridge where it's super windy and cold and the elements are all getting to it. I want to be kind of in the middle. I want to be sheltered. I want to be below my water so I can gravity feed it if possible. If not, you pump that water with a solar pump to a higher um, dam and then you can use that water passively. Maybe it's a solar pump so that you do that all without incurring any sort of carbon debt um, or at least a carbon debt you can pay off in time. And then, and then you're like, okay, I've got my buildings, I've got my water, I've got my roads. And then you got to think about fencing. What do you need to protect permanently? And I'm not talking about fences and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to graze, I'm going to do this. Don't think about that yet. Because as Joel Saladin says, wait three years before you put any permanent fencing in. Because you want to see what, what the landscape tells you, what the animals show you, what the seasons show you before you do anything like that. If you put a fence in and leave it there for three years, then you make it a permanent fence, install something nice. But yeah, so but, but there's going to be things, right? You're going to want to put a perimeter fence maybe along your roads and access and then around the house area. And then you're going to want to put that, like, you know, a road, an access road around along that border fence inside it, too. You know, there's all these different things that suddenly make sense, right? And maybe, maybe the boundary fence is the boundary fence around your access road, like I just said, but also the boundary fence could be along your boundary of property to someone else. And so the road would be on the inside. That's why I said that. And it's common. I mean, think about it. Think about all the paddocks you've seen on farms. They have that lane on the inside so they can get around everywhere. It's very common. 
I think it's called a headway, headspace, headlane, something like that. My, it's eluding me right now. Um, but so think about that. Think about fencing and don't, and don't cut up your landscape crazily yet. Just do it at the macro, the, the this must be in kind of level. So you're doing your boundary fences. You're doing the fences around your house. You're doing the fences around road access. And then you're using electric fences to move the animals around. So it's non-permanent. You're reactive. You're moving daily. You're doing the holistic management thing. You're rocking it. Um, and then we're looking at soil. Where's the good soil on your site? Is it? Oh, it's that that section, isn't it? Okay, that's the garden section, maybe. Or maybe that's the pasture section. Maybe that's the orchard section. But identify where the good soils are. Identify where the bad soils are. And then um, suddenly you've got a very clear idea of the area for growing, the areas for grazing. And then you've got square footage, square meterage of those areas. And then you can apply key line design and you literally can create a, your own business plan for the economy section, the next section. So you're looking at it and you're like, okay, well, I can use key line design and I can map this out so that I know exactly the square footage of my lanes, of my rows, of my paddocks. And then you map that out and you set it up so that you know exactly how many cattle you can support on that landscape because you need to shift it a certain number of times and you need a, a certain amount of feed per head. This is all in my book. This is holistic management covers this too. Um, and so you calculate this exactly and then you're like, wow, I can make this much money with cattle on this landscape. You're like, huh. Well, let's run the numbers on orchard. What if I just turn this all into uh, agroforestry? And, and then you do lanes with food in between with, with trees. And then you're like, well, what if I did the agroforestry seasonally and then I ran cattle through seasonally and rented it out? And, and then you, you look at the numbers for that. And then you're, you're suddenly seeing what you can make. And then you're like, oh, okay, that's what I can make. How much is this going to cost? And you then you're looking at the rows, the yields, because man, the trees square footage again, they they'll tell you what a mature tree square footage and projected yield. So you know how many bushels per tree, you know how many trees, you know how many people that will take to help you, like that you'll need to harvest that. You went and talked to the local farmer's market. You you went and uh, volunteered at a local farmer's uh, harvest maybe and counted it yourself maybe or asked them as we were doing it. But you know how many people you'll need to help you suddenly. You know, you call up a local guy and say, you know, I've got this much land. I'm thinking about these months for grazing. What would you what would you pay for that? You know, I'm right over here. And, and so you get a projected what people would pay for that. And suddenly you have a very clear idea of your return on investment on a landscape that perhaps you haven't even bought yet. Perhaps you haven't even gone to look at. Perhaps you just pulled up a topographic map of the location that you're scouting out. So, and then, and then, and then you're like, okay, that's what I can make on it. That's what it would cost. And then you're like, how 10 
because Darren goes all the way. He is so thorough. I love Darren Doherty and the agrarian's way of thinking, the Rex online school. You guys have to check this stuff out. My program dovetails right to it. It trains you so that when you get there, you're ready to rock. You don't get overwhelmed. A lot of these things, you know, streamlined. Same thing with Peter McCoy's uh, mycology school. This is where you just streamline all this, okay? So that when you get there, you can rock it. You're not slowed down and held up. And you can move right to professional skills. Um, and then 10, energy. So how are you going to power this operation? And then that plays right back into economy. It's a feedback loop. And you're like, okay, so this is going to cost me that much and that's going to affect my overhead. So how are you going to power the water? How are you going to power the house? How are you going to power the electric fencing? Oh, you can put solar. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> How are you going to power um, all the economic side of things? And a lot of you are like energy, electricity. Okay, solar panel. Boom, I'm done, man. What about your machines? Are they all electric? Because I, I know that there are a few experimental electric tractors, but they're not you know ubiquitous yet. But um, diesel is. But you're like, Matt, diesel, that's not, that's not sustainable. But you know, um, biodiesel is. And in my course, I have an amazing example with Bruce Steele, who raises Mangalista pigs for unreal prosciutto. But then he uses their fat to make biodiesel that he powers his tractors with and all his farm equipment. So, and his truck and everything. So you have a situation where it goes outside of what we normally consider energy. And I want to encourage you to think outside the bounds of energy. You can create passive water systems, passive heating and cooling systems for houses. You can, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that can, that, that, that can work. You can use solar panels um, for portable fencing. Um, there's a lot of things that can work. I mean, you could even go Amish on it and use horsepower. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a wonderful book called The Horsepowered Farm. So I just wanted to share this with you so you would know why my work is different, why my programs are unique, and why people are saying it is the best permaculture program course curriculum and experience currently available. My students have taken other PDCs, other advanced permaculture programs. They've, they've, they've taken them all collectively. Many of my teachers, you know, have been teaching permaculture for so long. Many of them have done this thing where they've taught their niche and they've taught the PDC, but they don't have the bridge between them. And that's what my course is. It's the bridge to professional regenerative skills. It is the bridge to advanced permaculture, to an advanced permanent culture, and not just a way to learn to be a permaculture consultant, not just a way to learn to teach a PDC course, and not just a way to improve your garden. We must change our economy, our society, we must change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we interact with everything. It all has to evolve, it all has to change. This book, The Permaculture Student 2, is available on my website, thepermaculturestudent.com, for free. The first edition is. 
The second edition has just been released on Amazon. Uh, you can get it there or you can get it on my website at a discount and also signed. And you also get the workbook too and it's all in a package deal um, that I know you're going to love. And you can actually get all my books at a discount right now. You can actually get into the Advanced Permaculture Student online at a very special $300 discount right now. Um, we have over 70 teachers, over six months of education. We have, we're the only project-based permaculture course that dovetails with professional skills and application. Um, it's the only project PBL student-centered group discussion-based course that I know of. Um, this is what I was trained to do. I'm a master educator. I have a master's degree in this and it is so exciting to finally be able to apply. All the things that I know are the highest level of learning and teaching and growth and peak performance in one setting. It is so thrilling and my students reflect that. Uh, my students are on fire. They're so excited. They're, they're so pumped. And these are people that have taken PDCs. These are people that teach permaculture. These are people that are, you know, have taken PDCs with Jeff Lawton, but still were not convinced, didn't have hope, but have taken my course and now know they're certain that we can change the world. So I hope that you join us. Um, I know that it will change your life and I know you won't regret it. That's why my book is free online. So go to the permaculturestudent.com and, and download it. And now, without any further ado, we have the chapter 10 of the Permaculture Student 2, Permaculture Frameworks and Processes. Chapter 10, Permaculture Processes and Frameworks. There is no one way and no one answer to any problem and never can be. There are millions of answers and potential solutions. And these have to be worked out case by case, situation by situation, by people who are driven by a desire for something better. Alan Savory, Holistic Management, 1999. Concepts and Themes in Design. All things have their time and season. We can't plant summer crops in winter. We can't run before we learn to walk. And we won't have any reassurance of safety or a positive outcome unless we know what we are doing before we act. We plant when it is time to plant. Plants and seeds grow when it is their time and place to grow. In all things, even social, timing is everything. Self-managed systems. Perhaps the ultimate design concept is the self-managed system. Many dream of a farm that runs itself without human input or management. The farmer needs only harvest and sell the products. This idea of foraging and living off the wilderness's abundance is actually possible to a certain degree. You would still need to gather the chestnuts and grind them to make bread. Nothing is without some input on our part. We can also design aspects of a system to self-manage. This can be accomplished through rotational grazing, larger aquaculture systems, food forests, perennial gardens, decentralization of authority, unschooling, or even restored wilderness. That being said, 
All thriving production systems require a human input of work, observation, and intervention at appropriate times. The unknown variables. In natural systems, we can influence the cycles in place, introduce new cycles, replace, damage, or remove cycles, but we can never know all the variables involved in these choices. Everything is in motion. Everything is part of many cycles, and everything is at some stage in a process, usually in tandem, with innumerable other processes in the ecosystem. We cannot control everything. Observation and careful reflection over time as we make changes, followed by careful adaptations, are always needed. Longevity of design. Systems we construct should last as long as possible with the least amount of maintenance possible. These systems should be fueled by the sun and produce enough abundance to support themselves. The creators of that system and the wildlife of that area. Whatever energy used to create the system has to be regenerated or captured by the system itself and continue to do so as long as possible. Food forests, for example, can last thousands of years if designed properly. The big pumpkin fallacy. Striving for the biggest yield leads to more watering more fertilizer, and more energy inputs for the targeted crop, while decreasing the overall yields of a system. It is preferable to create a resilient system with minimal inputs that has diverse yields. Some tomato plants put on only two to three small fruits per plant, but those fruits are more vividly flavored than any store-bought tomato. The case is the same with dry finished tomatoes in Sonoma County, California. It makes the flavors more intense when the plants only feed off the water table and farmers withhold irrigation. Bigger or more is not always better, especially when it comes to flavor and quality. Cycles, a niche in time. A niche is a role in an ecosystem. And cycles are niches interacting over time in an ecosystem. Cycles have neither beginning nor end. All members in it play critical roles. Cycles trap energy, water, minerals, and nutrients in a system and cycle them through as many elements as possible, potentially for a very long time. We can increase this effect by adding in more elements, supporting or enhancing current cycles, or removing something that is blocking or hindering niches or cycles in the ecosystem. From the deer grazing in our meadows to the moles tunneling beneath them, they're all busy in the business of their niche and cycle. Principle of cyclical opportunity. If we increase the number of cycles and speed up cycling in a system, we will always increase the yields in that system. If the system is unbalanced, the increased cycles could lead to problems like more chickens in a limited space could lead to unclean water and more aggression among the birds, which could lower yield or decrease their quality. Stability within a niche and cycle can only increase by connecting it with more cycles, increasing its role in the greater system. Resources. Those that increase with modest use. 
Lemon balm and most herbs produce better if they are regularly harvested, otherwise they go to seed. They can give a near continuous yield if persistently trimmed. Those unaffected by use. Sheep's wool returns after it is harvested without affecting the sheep negatively, if done properly and at the right time of year. Those which disappear or degrade if not used. Languages disappear if they are not used. Such is the case with many living things. They need a naturally occurring ecosystem to be active in to maintain their population. Perennial grasses will die if they are not harvested to allow their lower growth points to receive sunlight. Grazed grasses improve their root structure if managed properly. Those reduced by use. Finite resources like fossil fuels and rare earth minerals that are not actively being recreated by the environment like fossil fuels can be used up. Those which pollute other resources if used. Acquiring many fossil fuels like shale gas deposits through high pressure hydraulic fracking poisons or permanently ruins aquifers, rivers, lakes, streams, and wells. These are unethical resources or processes that must be boycotted or banned. Observe, ask questions, hypothesize, test, observe, reflect, ask new questions, and develop theories. The scientific method. This cycle of actions is at the core of all the sciences and it is no different in permaculture. However, academic science has a long track record of isolating subjects under study and then subjecting them to testing and experimentation in isolation. This leads to a warped perception of the way the natural world actually behaves. In permaculture, the approach is different because for permaculturists, it is a given that all things are part of a cycle, a greater whole, and that testing performed separate and in isolation from the original context, the cycle, will produce skewed results. The scientific method also has no ethical component, which can lead down some ethically slippery slopes, especially in modern medicine and biotechnology. The scientific method alone cannot be the sole rudder for exploring our world. Permaculture provides the ethical lens needed for the scientific method to be fully effective. Methods of design. Functional design. Similar to stacking functions, this principle strives for each element to have multiple regenerative functions and for these functions to be supported by multiple elements in the system. This creates backup cycles and systems for both inputs and outputs. The reality of working with living systems is that each component likely has innumerable daily interactions indirectly and directly with its environment, but they are too subtle and well stacked to observe them all. It is enough that we recognize how to set things in motion for natural systems to begin stacking cycles. Analysis. Make lists for every element of your system analyzing their behaviors, their variety, their products, and their needs. This could be for a pig, a chicken house, a fence, an entire herd, see diagram, or even a planting technique. Anything can be analyzed for how it works, what kind it is, what it does, and what it requires. Observation and reflection. Extended observation of both natural systems and all design projects prior to working on them is critical. Ecosystems develop around open resources in nature and capturing them in stable cycles. 
we can observe and extend these natural systems to increase yield and fertility. We can note the high marks on the stream banks indicating flood events. We can see tree flagging and feel loamy soil beneath our feet. Reflecting back on our observations, research and experiences allows for further connections to be made. And it also allows for adaptation to occur in response to environmental conditions. Observation develops during reflection into more informed actions. Options and decisions. This planning technique involves a simple listing of all possible options and then deciding by process of elimination which ones to utilize. What types of main crops to use, what types of perennials to plant, etc. All these decisions are improved by choosing from a list of all possible options. Often further overlays or questions are useful in refining the lists. Always keeping in mind how things will be not just how they are currently. Data overlay. Overlays are layers to a map, design, or a concept that help demonstrate an idea without completely altering the original map design or concept. It quickly provides perspectives on the same data set. Topographic maps, food forest layout, overlays, energy, air, or water flow overlays, and more specific overlays all help. Visualize the options and their behaviors, interactions, and further possibilities, making decision-making and design implementation easier. Random assembly. Though simple, this strategy can yield interesting combinations. List all elements in your possible system before you actually set them up, and possible connective strategies like above, below, into, beneath, behind, downslope, etc. By connecting two elements with random assemblies like above or inside of, unique effects and interactions can be discovered. While it can create useless or silly constructions, the possibility of discovering something we've never thought of before is much higher with this exercise. It's the most random and creative of techniques listed. Flow diagrams. These diagrams show the movement of energy, people, water, or any specific element in a system and can be as simple as a floor plan for a common workplace like a kitchen, studio, your desk, or living room. Flow diagrams can help improve efficiency in any work that involves repetitive movement in a finite space. Organizing resources and designing workflows to be efficient and manageable is critical for long-term sustainability. Zone planning and analysis. Zone planning helps us arrange the elements of our system so we don't waste time and energy. If it's an everyday task, having it close to home is ideal to minimize energy and time spent walking or carrying tools that distance. The exact layout of the zones will differ with each design based on the elements included, the geography, the people involved, the economics involved, and the designer's own style of designing. Zone zero, the home or house, which can include an attached greenhouse, shade house, trellis, passive solar, etc. Seeds can be saved indoors, fungi can be prepared and grown, and numerous other regenerative plans and actions occur in the home. Zone one, 
The immediate area around the home is ideal for elements that need continuous observation, like tree nurseries, greenhouses, vermicompost, kitchen and herb gardens, edible and medicinal mushroom patches and logs, and quiet animals like rabbits. Other common elements, rainwater catchment, trellis, gray water systems, and greenhouses. This is an area you pass or visit daily and can spend time daily working in. This is also the area that usually has the longest growing season being worn by the house and closely attended. Zone two. This area is less intensive and less visited than zone one. It includes small domestic stock, orchards, food forests, small pastures, broad acre crops, and animal shelters that connect to zone one ideally. This area is visited every other day or just briefly once a day, though it can occupy longer periods of time routinely as well. Zone three. This is often a place of seasonal annual or monthly work, and it usually requires animals or machines to manage. It includes broad acre crops, larger animals, larger pastures, natural or low maintenance trees, larger water storages, barns, feed storage, windbreak, and hedgerow. Zone four. This is the wildest of the managed areas in the system. It borders the wilderness. It includes timber, the largest pastures, firewood, native and non-native hardy trees, and large water storages. This is an area that is visited seasonally for specific tasks and lightly interacted with. Zone five, the unmanaged or least managed zone. Zone five is wilderness for hunting, timber, foraging, wild fungi, and observation. Though in general, we are cautioned to leave it alone as much as possible, we must intervene to instill resilience in our native ecosystems. Climate instability worldwide and atmospheric carbon levels are destabilizing these ecosystems and they are in decline. Zonal development's golden rule. Develop the nearest areas first until they stabilize and then expand the perimeter. Start with zone zero and one. Any soil will yield a good garden if prepared properly. Save time and start close to home. This is very similar to making the least change for maximum effect. It should be noted that the zone lists are just examples and individual circumstances may shift these elements around in your system depending on your goals and ideas. This is to give you a basic idea of what works well. Energy flow. Sun, wind, precipitation, flood and wildfire. These pressures shape our landscape and influence our homes in all designs. We can easily see where gardens, orchards, wilderness, home building sites, shade and windbreak can go when we consider the energy flow. We can map the sun path and the prevailing winds and their directions, and we can note the areas that are prone to frost, flood, and fire. We can use this information as a map overlay or to inform our design decisions. Orientation. Orientation is the direction or angle of an element in relation to the sun path. If a house is perpendicular to the sun path and not parallel, energy, heat, will accumulate unevenly, heating only the sunny side. If a garden is oriented away from the sun and into a wind tunnel, some crops will perform poorly. Homes should be designed to accept as much solar energy as beneficially and evenly as possible, while sheltering the inhabitants from unwanted elements. Slope. 
Nearly every site has some slope, even if it seems flat. Understanding slope allows a designer to know where water will flow, where gravity is pulling the system, and where elements can be best placed. Slope can be seen with a topographic map easily. Water should always be stored at the highest possible point to gain as much gravitational potential energy as possible. Slopes at 40 to 50% must be put into erosion control, tree planting, or skillful terraces. Flat plains need windbreak, copses, and hedgerows. In cool areas, orient everything towards the sun, while in more arid and hot areas, orient elements to create, magnify, and share shade and channel cooling breezes. Refer to the prior page for a simple way to calculate slope. Aspect. Aspect is the slope's orientation. A slope facing the sun may get too much heat, or if turned away from the sun, not enough heat. This is critical in site planning for a home. Is it on the dark side of the hill or in direct sun? Will the trees shade the house in summer? How many hours of light reach the home in winter? Understanding aspect helps us answer these questions. Sun angle. We can see the sun angle easily in the early morning or afternoon when the angle is most acute. The shadows can be measured against the objects casting them. Knowing the angle as it changes over the year allows us to properly design roofs, shade height, plantings, windows, orientation of buildings, and more. If we do not want to observe and wait all year long to calculate the sun's angle and sun path before finishing our plants, we can use one of the many online sun angle calculators. Sustainable by Design hosts a free and precise sun angle calculator here. There's a website right there. Measuring on the solstice and equinoxes will give you an idea of the timing and the extremes of your sun angles throughout your year. The soundscape. While often overlooked, the sounds that we hear can affect us immensely. The sound of a highway or construction can steal the relative tranquility that would otherwise be present in a well-developed ecosystem. Using sound reflecting fences, earthworms, water features, and thick, absorbent vegetation like large and wide evergreen trees can be done to reduce or silence disruptive sound. Timing. Timing is critical. The time of the year, the time of the season, the time of the day, the time in the life cycle of the organism, etc. Understanding when to do something, when not to do something, and how long to do something defines understanding proper usage or interaction with that thing. It can be cattle, chickens, a garden, or a person. Incremental design. Through small changes over time, using observation and the extension of natural systems, we can continuously improve efficiency. This process often takes generations of development. It happens after a mainframe design has been put into place, and it manifests as continual adaptations for increasing benefit over time, sometimes generationally. This can also be seen in plant breeding. Our modern large kerneled corn was bred from Teosinte, a wild and small seeded native grass. It took thousands of years of generational and incremental change. This strategy also mimics how ecosystems and organisms are perpetually adapting to the continuously changing environment. Strategies that create yields. This is not a complete list as there can never be a complete list of strategies. 
These are simply to help suggest, guide, and improve your designs. Most of the concepts listed here are described elsewhere in this book in greater detail. Here, they are generalized and gathered for an overview to aid designers in developing a more holistic lens. Physical, environmental. Creating niches for a new species by providing habitat or resources. Soil building and regeneration. Water catchment, gray water and stacking water usages. Synergistic integration of structures and landscape. Biological. Selection of low maintenance cultivars and native species. Investigation of other species for usable yields. Supplying key nutrients through system arrangement and on-site input. Plant and animal guilds and partnerships. Spatial, managerial, and configurational. Stacking functions or nesting. Tessellation of mosaic formation. Edge or harmonic design. Arrangement of systems to easily route energy for best use. Zone, sector, slope, orientation, or site strategies. Keyline scale of permanence or the Regrarian's platform. Holistic management. Timing. Sequential nesting or patterning like interplanting, intercropping, etc. Accelerating cyclical frequency. Chop and drop, compost teas, etc. Tessellation of cycles and successions. As in browsing sequences, Cows followed by chickens followed by turkeys followed by rest. Technical. Use of appropriate or rehabilitative technology. Design of energy efficient structures, systems, and tools. Conservation. Routing resources to the next best use. Recycling everything. Reusing or repurposing everywhere possible. Safe storage of food products. No tillage or low tillage cropping. Creation of very durable systems, structures, and tools. Storage of runoff water for extended use. Cultural. Removing cultural barriers to resource use and regenerative living. Making currently unusual resources such as human ore acceptable. Expanding choices in a culture or community making resources available to stimulate and perpetuate cultural connections to nature, such as heirloom seed swaps, regional and tribal seed libraries, etc. Legal administrative, removing socioeconomic, legal, bureaucratic, and governmental impediments to resource use, regenerative living, and social development. Creating effective structures to aid resource management and education can be voluntarily achieved or through legislation. Social, cooperative endeavors, pooling of resources, sharing, trusts, land trusts, nonprofit organizations, churches, local groups, online groups. All eight forms of capital cycling within the community, positive social action to remove and replace impeding systems, cost analyzing and adjusting systems holistically for all energy inputs and outputs. Design, making harmonious connections between components and subsystems, making choices as to where we place things or how we live, 
Observing, managing, and directing systems. Researching and applying new information. Designing on paper first. Setting priorities based upon resources available. Developing zone one first completely, then expanding outward. Expanding with observed successes. Looking at the big picture to design, but referring to the smaller picture perspective to refine the overall design. Think in whole systems, but be prepared to consider all perspectives of the system, including people within those systems at all times. Be nimble. Extending yields. Early, mid, and late season. This should be applied to all our systems. We should have early, mid, and late season apples, but we should also have all the seasons covered similarly with a diversity of yields. Planting the same varieties in early or late ripening situations, like the sunny or shady part of a hill. Staggering plantings. By planting seeds one section at a time every week or every few weeks, we can guarantee that we won't run out of lettuce or let any go to waste. Long yielding varieties. These are usually perennials, but annuals such as cherry tomatoes give continuous yields for many years if located in a suitable climate or greenhouse situation. Long lasting varieties. Both the longevity of the plant and its relative products should be considered. For instance, olive trees can live for thousands of years. Dried grains, vegetables, and fruits remain edible for years. Increasing diversity of yield. Using polycultures in the garden, we can spread our yields out and increase them by having many different elements and products. Improving preservation methods or expanding storage spaces. Through root cellars, clutches, canning, curing, drying, smoking, fermenting, pickling, etc. Trade. By trading regionally, we can create bonds between communities while providing each with a service that benefits both and diversifies our yields by transforming them through trade. Microclimates. These allow us to concentrate or deflect on-site energies to create a different climate from the surrounding dominant climate. Using windbreaks such as a fence or a line of trees, thermal mass like buried stone or a pond and or orientation to the sun path, we can shelter and warm an area to extend the growing season and therefore the yields in that area. Frameworks. A simple task framework. Technique. How to do something. Strategy. A technique or set of techniques applied to a cycle or system. Materials. The resources on a site. Trees, soil, rocks, people, etc. Assemblies. The arrangement of materials in design. Patterns. The arrangements of assemblies. Holism. Holism, a term coined by J.C. Smuts, but an ancient concept, is the idea that everything is part of a whole and represents a whole in itself. The wholes individually are called holons. All systems in nature are holons that fit into larger holons and contain smaller holons within them. From the atom, to the ecosystem, to the solar system, Viewing the world and our interactions through a holistic lens allows for better management and understanding. Holistic management and decision making. Alan Savory discovered that the removal of large herbivores from desertifying land in Zimbabwe 
made the desertification accelerate. He realized that even if we cannot recognize it immediately, ecological systems are holistically interdependent and complicated. Savory started considering all the aspects of a situation, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, energy flow, and socioeconomic factors. Holism as a concept implies that components cannot be fully separated from the functions and interrelations of the whole. Created by Alan Savory, holistic management and the holistic decision framework both help designers take the arrangements and designs that permaculture generates and manage them holistically. Forming a holistic goal. Forming goals alone is powerful. We articulate what we desire to see, have, or be in the future. The conceptual framework we design for accomplishing those big goals generates a series of smaller goals to reach each milestone. Without a goal, we are directionless. Without a holistic goal, we are bound to encounter conflict and make errors on our way to accomplishing our goals. By reflecting on the framework and the principles, we can help shape, refine, and generate our holistic goals. The framework of holistic management. Define the whole. Define what it is in its entirety that you are working on. Set ethical short-term and long-term goals. Set goals for what you want and need based on how things will be in the future, not as they are now. Observe and document. Careful observation for signs of degeneration or regeneration gives managers early indicators for course correction. Documentation helps locate patterns, extend retention, and deepen comprehension. Use your toolkit. These are in no way limited to Savior's list for cattle management. Your toolkit will likely have specific tools addressing your situation, but his list includes financial capital, human ingenuity, herbivores, wildlife, soil biology, fire, rest, and technology. The concept can be adapted to any situation. Test your decisions. For economic, financial, and social success over the long term and short term, choices must be tested and reflected upon from different angles and through different lenses. Feedback loop. Without regular monitoring, reflection, and adaptation, productivity and the regenerative progress will inevitably decrease. The four principles of holistic management. Nature is holistic. All are mutualists in a balanced ecosystem. Disrupt one aspect of an ecosystem and you disrupt them all. Adaptation is constant. All successful plants, animals, and ecosystems adapt constantly to their environments, and so should any design that we implement. Mimicking natural patterns can restore ecosystems. Using herbivores behaving as they did under heavy predator pressure, and at the herd densities per square foot they used to maintain, we can mimic the original patterns that created the grasslands and rich soils. This concept can be applied to everything and is the most basic tenet of permaculture. We can use natural cycles to restore the natural world. Time and timing. Knowing how long to do something and when to do something, both these skills are vital to good management of any system, whether they be relationships with people, animals, plants, 
or the land. Keyline scale of permanence. Created by P.A. Yeomans, this scale has influenced permaculture designers and regenerative agriculture practitioners all over the globe. The scale of permanence is a prioritizing framework, so it organizes the order in which we design and install a site. It was initially drawn up to enable Australian farmers to design their farms. Each step in the scale of agricultural permanence makes the next step easier to develop. Number one, climate. Number two, land shape. Number three, water supply. Number four, farm roads. Number five, trees. Number six, permanent buildings. Number seven, subdivision fences. Number eight, soil. The Regrarians Platform. The Regrarians Platform extends PA Yeoman's scale of permanence by adding elements from holistic management. Introduced by Darren J. Doherty, Regrarians Handbook, the Regrarians Platform is a more holistic take on the Yeoman scale of permanence. Number one, climate. Number two, geography. Number three, water. Number four, access. Number five, forestry. Number six, buildings. Number seven, fencing. Number eight, soil. Number nine, economy. Number 10, energy. Keyline patterning in design. Edited and reviewed by Darren J. Doherty. Quote, Keyline planning is based on the natural topography of the land and its rainfall. It uses the form and shape of the land to determine a farm's total layout. The topography of the land, when viewed in the light of Keyline concepts, clearly delineates the logical position of on-farm dams, irrigation areas, roads, fences, and farm buildings. It also determines the location of tree belts to provide shade and give wind protection. Keyline concepts also include processes for rapid soil enrichment. The shape of a landscape is produced by the weathering of geological formations over millennia. The processes are always the same. And so the topography of agricultural land has a basic fundamental consistency. It is the inevitable nature of land shape that river valleys collect water from smaller creek valleys. They in turn are fed their water from still smaller valleys until finally the water derives from the very first or primary valleys of the catchment area. In any country, anywhere, when rain shapes the land over long periods of time, it inevitably creates and determines the topography of that land. Ultimately, at the extreme upstream of any river system, there always exist thousands of primary valleys. The only variation to consistent topographical shapes occurs where geological features, such as hard rock outcrops, modify normal surface weathering. Alan Yeomans, Priority 1, 2005. The key point. This is the point after which the slope changes from an erosion zone to a deposition zone. Clay and silt particles settle here in great concentrations as the water slows in its path on top of and through the soil. Key points occur some distance after the land coming down from the ridge has changed from convex to concave. How gentle or steep the slope is determines where the most settling occurs. The slowing of the water that leads to deposition only begins at the concave point 
So at some point below that, deposition will begin and concentrate in the landscape. This observation and concept coined by Australian author and farmer Pierre Yeomans are enduring. It is the idea that we can catch, soak, and divert water at these points in the land for better hydrology of the land. These are ideal sites for dams. Sepulter is much more free-form with his interpretation of these sites. Any depressions or deep zones are areas where clays and silts have been collecting and therefore they are all ideal pond or water retention sites. Key line. Key line is a contour line that extends off the key point. A swale or diversion drain can be extended off the key point at contour, increasing the water catchment of the key point. Using swales increases the catchment at both the key point and below the key line. Sealed diversion drains focus the water at the key point. Swale paths or roads can be ripped to increase infiltration. Where possible, terraces extend off key points. It is important to note that the key line does not extend to the ridge. It is contained in the primary valley between primary ridges extending out from a main ridge. The contour of the key point within the primary valley is called the key line. Access. A key concept in both the key line scale of permanence and the Regrarian's platform is access. Roads or pathways in design. This is because when designing a site, everything is first based off the climate, then geography, and then water. Once you know where the water is, you are going to need to base your system around accessing and using that water. All trees, irrigation, housing, etc. are based off where the roads are placed. Improperly placed roads flood, erode, or wash away. But a well-placed road on the center of a ridge is ideal. Grading it to allow water to leave the road evenly will prevent erosion. This makes for a long-lasting durable road. Roads along the ridges also allow tree systems to circulate the air and avoid frost pockets. Having access along the ridge means any contour off the ridge allows for easy access and road building. Roads often serve as the skeleton for all keyline pattern designs with ridgeline roads being the spines. Often we see roads going down the center of valleys and homes lining it, but this is a recipe for disaster because the valleys are where all the water and everything it carries collects. Different from on contour. While some use swales on contour exclusively on their site, with great results, many landscapes generate a lot of swale stubs, inconvenient narrowings or widenings, and dead-end paths. Keyline patterning only uses the top or bottom contour of an area to determine the guideline for the rest of the rows, berms, roads, or fences. In valley systems, start at the top and then move down parallel to the original guideline. See diagram. In steep cultivation areas, start from the bottom contour and then make rows parallel to that contour line uphill at an equidistant spacing. This allows for standardization of access. The road or path is the same width the entire way and whatever equipment is being used can make turns easily at the ends of the rows or roads regardless of whether it is a wheelbarrow or a large tractor. Equidistant rows and the classic grid pattern is a time-tested system that can use contour as an initial guide but ultimately cannot follow the contours for every line or row. In a commercial setting, standardized rows give farmers 
the data necessary to more easily manage their farms and predict their yields, sales, water retention, carbon sequestration, and more. Pastoral and beyond. While initially designed to help ranchers and farmers with hydrology and farm planning, the keyline design method has been applied to forestry. Pastoral ripping is a shallow one to two feet deep, 50 centimeters, while forest ripping is more often one meter. The water catchment from a forest is immense, so the ripping has to go deep for a fast penetration of water and easy access for roots to travel downward easily. Keyline design, keyline patterning, the Regrarian's platform, and keyline subsoil plow ripping are all incredibly powerful concepts to source in design. The Regrarian platform's addition of socioeconomic aspects allows for keyline thinking to find inroads into many different holistic contexts. For businesses, entrepreneurs, and consultants, the methodical approach, the detailed and advanced mapping, and analytical tools discussed in Darren J. Doherty's Regrarian's Handbook are an inspiration and a solid guide towards better practice. Rewilding in Design While it is often overlooked by designers, Zone 5, the wilderness is in serious distress. The natural mechanisms by which our annual and perennial cycles operated have been lost. The mastodons and their kind are gone. Large wild herds of grazers held in balance by natural predators are gone as well. Their manures are also missing from the soils. Wildfires are out of control and the deserts keep spreading. Critical components of our ecosystems are missing or out of balance. And that is why they are no longer operating like natural systems. Many landscapes have become unnatural, mismanaged and damaged by human activities for hundreds of years. Some of these areas are US national parks. This has led to a movement called rewilding, a call to bring back the wild again. As designers, we can help this process by regenerating natural habitats both in our cultivation areas and outside of them. In some cases, we will have to replace the extinct megafauna with our own behaviors, silviculture, and where possible, we have to reintroduce natural predators. Reintroduction of large predators to their original habitat can lead to trophic cascades, where multiple levels of the ecological food chain are affected beneficially. Wolves were reintroduced in the 1990s to Yellowstone National Park, USA, in an attempt to keep the elk at bay long enough for the willows and aspens to recover. In turn, helping to bring back beavers and support riparian restoration. Currently, while there is clear evidence of positive effects on biodiversity, there is a debate as to how effective wolves have been on the specific task of supporting beavers. The rivers and creeks lowered water tables have not all recovered. Human intervention is likely needed to help repair the situation the original wolf extermination initiated. In whatever small or large way we can, we must bring back the wild, partner with nature, and carefully over time learn how to support these ecosystems.
And remember, these ideas go deeper. Introducing these frameworks really allows us to put things in order, to make sense of things. And for many of us, we're gonna be like, oh my word, this is the, the wheels that I needed to put on my vehicle and to go. For some of us, we're gonna be like, man, I need to go over this more and see how this iterates through different examples. And so you may go to Holistic Management International. They've got free courses online, free videos online to teach you all this stuff more. And they've even got courses, you know, certifications so that you can teach it. And then you may be like, oh man, I don't understand the, all this, you know, Holistic Management uh, stuff being applied through Regrarian's platform. Well, then you might sign up for the Rex. You might sign up for my course. You might sign up for um, the newsletter with the Regrarians. You might start following all the many videos that Darren has shared, all the talks that he has online. So the information is out there to dive deeper. Um, it's waiting for you to really explore and to come into your own in this arena and make a difference in your life and in your community. So I hope that you buy or download the Permaculture Student 2 and this information you know is not available anywhere else this information is life-saving this information is life-changing this information will change the future this information every human being deserves it's their birthright to have access to so that's why I'm giving it away free who am I to hold this back this stuff is so important. I hope that you can take these ideas, lessons forward into your life. I hope that you download the Permaculture Student 2 and I hope that you join us for the very special $300 discount, the early bird discount on the Advanced Permaculture Student Online. I have over 70 teachers involved. I'm adding more teachers every single week as folks come to understand what is truly possible come to understand what working together as part of this unified framework organization that will guide future generations to a new regenerative future. That's what this podcast is about. That's what all my work is about. And that's why you're listening, I hope, <laughs> to make for a better future today. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. Have an amazing week, guys.